Welcome to the P40 Podcast. I'm Shireen Vishmaya, and today is March 8th, 2017. I'm recording this live in San Francisco, and I am so fortunate to be sitting with the author of Hellenistic Astrology and the creator of the Astrology Podcast, very respected, uh, one of the geniuses in our field for sure, um, and my Scorpio brother, Chris Brennan. So Chris, I'm so, so uh, thrilled to have you on the show today and have so many questions for you to ask. So I'm hoping we can get to everything, but um, I'm sure we'll do our best. So in the meantime, welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, no, my sincere pleasure. And um, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about just the whole um, really intense writing process and dedication you had to this book project. Um, Ten years, right? Yeah, I've been working on it for 10 years. I started in September of 2006, and it's gone through various like drafts and uh, versions since then. But then, And then finally a year ago, I decided I needed to actually rewrite it from scratch drawing on some of the previous information, but because I'd been writing it for 10 years, I wanted to adopt a more consistent tone. So I sort of started from page one and then just rewrote the entire thing over this past year. So that's been the most intense part. Uh, The rewrite. Right. Is the most intense. Yeah. Because it's like, there's so much research that you, you did and so much gathering, right? Yeah. And that's most of what I did over the past 10 years was just studying um, ancient history, studying ancient philosophy and the the intersection between those fields with ancient astrology. And then, of course, studying some of the um, astrological texts that were written in Greek and Latin and other languages from about 2000 years ago and, and trying to reconstruct some of the approaches to astrology that they contained. That's been a large part of the past 10 years. Wow. Yeah. What an enormous, you know, it's a real like it's, it's such a devotion, you know, to, to give so much time. I mean, how many hours a day would you spend on this project, would you say? Um, it's hard to quantify just because I would go in like spurts where mm. I would go for like a month where I would be trying to translate this, this chapter or something from a text or like a few months where I was trying to reconstruct what these, this original set, what, what like the aspect doctrine was originally or how they originally defined what an aspect was um, but then other times I'd have to switch back to, um, you know, I'm a practicing astrologer and so doing other things in order to do consultations or, you know, go to conferences to lecture and sort of support myself doing that and alternating between uh, doing that and writing the book has been sort of the challenge over the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And and running your podcast, which you've, you said you had been doing since um, 2012. Yeah, I uh, started the Astrology Podcast in 2012, and that was kind of like a new incarnation of a previous podcast I had done since, I think, 2009 or 2010 called Traditional Astrology Radio. Mm. Uh, But I I wanted to broaden things and open it up because I'm, you know, myself, even though I specialize in uh, ancient astrology, I'm not only, that's not all I practice, and I, I come from a background in modern uh, psychological astrology. So I, I more open to exploring all the different traditions and blending them. So that's why I decided to switch it up a bit and, and turn it into just the astrology podcast in 2012 and relaunch it under that, that more general platform. Mm-hmm. That's great. And yeah, you were saying in your, on your podcast, how you were telling this really fascinating story about how when you started at Kepler, well, actually, even going backing it up a little further, I thought it was so cool that you were so um, inspired by astrology that you were, you were just you wanted to drop out of school so you could study it. Yeah, I actually discovered astrology when I was fourteen or fifteen, <laughs> and I was still in high school, and I just had this sort of instant sense of of this is you know what I would like to pursue in my life, and this is what I'd like to do in my life, and it just blew my mind the the concept of natal astrology for one and just that any of it worked like that was so so fascinating and so mind-blowing to me that I knew I wanted to sort of dedicate myself to it because when I when I find something I tend to be the type of personality where I if there's something I'm interested in I really dedicate you know everything to studying it and doing as much with it as I can um, and just going as far with it as I can so that's what I did when I was in high school but yeah one of my you know, you're probably the same way. Yeah, Scorpios all the way. Right, exactly. Is, is your Mercury in Scorpio also? Yeah, I've got yeah. Sun and Saturn <laughs> and 
Pluto and, and Mercury oh, hello. Uh, in Scorpio. <laughs> of course you do. I love it. <laughs> of course. Uh, so yeah, so I figured that out in high school, but I also realized that, you know, this was not something that uh, I was going to be able to pursue in college, right? I didn't think I could study astrology uh, in college. So I, I initially actually dropped out of high school in order to just study astrology full time since I figured you know, I, I had figured out what I wanted to do. And if I couldn't major in that or do something directly related to that in college, I sort of saw it as a waste of time in some sense in my, you know, infinite wisdom as a 14 or 15 year old. Um, but I actually found out not long after that, that, um, a a school had recently opened, uh, called Kepler college in Washington, which at the time was actually, um, it was a newly opened school that was offering accredited degrees in astrological studies, like within a context of a actual uh, college curriculum. So um, I, when I found out about that, I was really excited. I actually went back to school. I, I got my high school diploma, and then I went directly from high school to Kepler, mm-hmm. um, where I, I started focusing on, on getting a degree in something much more closely directed towards astrological studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense because that was your real passion. And um, But then you were also telling the story of how your initial interest in psychological astrology got diverted because they were like, no, sorry, you have to do this track. Yeah, so I mean, I, I grew up or, you know, quote unquote, grew up reading, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, Rob Hand and... At and age Alan, eight. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Rob Hand and Alan Oaken and like my first two books were like an, an ephemeris and Alan Oaken's complete <laughs> astrology and Sequoia and Acker's astrologer handbook. And then of course, hands planets and transit. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. Which everybody from like the <laughs> late nineties forward is, you know, that's one of the first books they end up indirectly reading automatically. Cause that's where Astro Deans draws most of their delineations from that's for like right. their personal daily horoscope. So, um, it's like that school and reading Howard Sesportas and and Liz Green and Stephen Arroyo and everything else, Mm -hmm. um, that set the sort of context for what astrology was. And I think I came into astrology assuming that it was a certain thing and then getting into it and learning that, you know, the, the paradigm at the time, the predominant paradigm or prevailing paradigm was modern psychological astrology. And I was on board with that, and that was my sort of approach to astrology, and that's what I specifically went to Kepler to learn because I thought that would be the best place to learn the sort of highest form of that or the most rigorous form of that that I could I could find based on the sort of proposed curriculum that they had on their website. So I went through the entire first year, which is all history largely, or it's, mm-hmm. it's largely centered around the history of astrology. And when I get to the second year, there's a course that's like a sort of remediary uh, intro to astrology course. So they make sure you understand some of the, the basic techniques and things. And then at that point in, I guess, what would be the second semester of the second year, you're supposed to branch off into different approaches based on what you want your main specialty to be on or, or mm-hmm. what you want to specialize in or focus your studies on. Mm-hmm. And when we got there, it was, you know, in their original catalog, they had the psychological track is the track that you could take at that point. But by the Mm. time I got there, they only had one track available, which was what they were calling the East West track, which, um, the first class of which was an entire semester devoted to an introduction to something they were calling Hellenistic astrology and an introduction, a simultaneous introduction to uh, Vedic astrology or Indian astrology at the same time. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So the class was co-taught by Demetrio George and Dennis Harness. And, uh, (laughs) And so I was actually just shocked and, and not very happy about that because I wanted to study modern psychological astrology and I sort of had this, you know, preconception that the, the older forms of astrology were, you know, outdated and, mm-hmm. and old and, and no longer relevant and that they didn't use things like the outer planets that had been discovered long after those traditions stopped being practiced and therefore there was nothing valuable there or, or that they were sort of behind in the times and that it would be a waste of time for me to sort of spend a semester studying that even though I had some sort of idle interest in the history of astrology or something like that it wasn't mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily want to specialize in I wanted to get right to you know what I wanted my main focus to be and I guess that's probably a reoccurring theme in my life in terms of my 
yeah. wanting to jump right to the heart of whatever it is that I want to focus on and not necessarily get bogged down in distractions. Right. But this ended yeah. up being like not a distraction, but a deepening of, I mean, it's so interesting how fate intervened and now it's become your genius really is that you've been able to wed these two systems and bring what was a misconception around, you know, oh, this is useless, throw it out to like, actually, no, we really need a lot of the wisdom found in these older traditions. Right. Yeah. I mean, I protested for a while and some of my, got some of my fellow students in my class to <laughs> protest, but then eventually the teachers were just like, deal with it and made us take the course. And it was only within a week or two of actually starting to take the course, I realized that everything that I thought was, was mistaken. And, and that in fact, I accidentally stumbled on something very useful and very uh, interesting and very valuable, um, which was, you know, this weird tradition called Hellenistic astrology from 2000 years ago. Mm. And within a few weeks of that, I was dedicated to, you know, this is what I want to want to spend the rest of my time, rest of my life trying to, to revive and trying to understand is this system of astrology from 2000 years ago. 2000 years ago. Wow. I know. And it's, you know, it's interesting because it does feel like it's making a comeback. I mean, even Vedic astrology is getting much more popular. I've noticed in the last couple of years. Yeah. Vedic astrology. Definitely. Um, there was a revival that happened in like the late eighties and early nineties where suddenly a lot of Western astrologers who are practitioners of like modern Western astrology suddenly got interested in practicing Vedic astrology. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of all the rage. And that's gone through different phases as they established like organizations and things like that. And there was a similar revival of traditional astrology in the early 90s, um, especially surrounding some of the translations that were coming out and being produced at that time of ancient texts. But one of the things that happened is that even though a lot of translations of some of these ancient texts were produced in the 1990s, um, and, and some of them were done based on a subscription service, and a lot of astrologers ended up with them on their shelves, they're actually kind of difficult texts to read, even in translation. So it takes mm-hmm. a lot of work, and it takes some background knowledge to even really get anything from them. And so that's what I've tried to do in my book is I've given an overview of this entire tradition of astrology Mm. and sort of a survey of it in order to give modern astrologers like the ability to have an understandable guide to this um, tradition without having to you know, pick up a text from 2000 years ago and attempt to read it. Thank you for doing that for us. (laughs) Sure. And that is such a gift, you know, because we do need it retranslated. Yeah, it's it's one of the tricky things with reading old texts yeah. is that sometimes you know you need a translator for the translator, yes. and at different points, different astrologers have have done that already. Like Demetra George, for example, did that to some extent with her book Astrology and the Authentic Self, which came out in two thousand nine. But her approach there was more attempting to to show what a synthesized approach or a blend of, of some Hellenistic astrology and mm-hmm. some modern astrology would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and for this, I wanted to help push, sort of complete the last phase of the the sort of project that was started in the 1990s with the re- revival of older forms of astrology, just by providing a comprehensive guide to this tradition so that anybody could get started by sort of reading this book. Yeah, that's such a valuable contribution to the field and so needed. And I, I'm curious about you know, since you started with that dual track of the Vedic and the Hellenistic, how that's been in your, like how that, I don't know if that, um, if that found its way into your book, into your writing. Yeah. So one of the things, the reason why they co-taught, why Demetra and Dennis Harness co-taught Hellenistic and Indian astrology uh, in intro to those together is because it turns out, if you look back in the history of astrology, that around the first century, um, CE, there were actually there was a lot of trade going on between Rome, uh, the Roman Empire, and India, and there was actually a bunch of Greek trading colonies and or Roman trading colonies set up on the western coast of India, mm. and they would they would use the the monsoon winds to mm-hmm. to sail back and forth between mm. uh, ports that were set up in western India and in Egypt, oh, which is under, under the control of the Roman Empire at that time. So. As a result of the trade that occurred between Rome and India in the first century, Hellenistic astrology and Indian astrology actually look extremely similar. And mm. if you compare both of them um, 
Indian astrology as it's practiced today by the majority of, of Indian practitioners looks much more similar to the way that Western astrology looked 2,000 years ago mm-hmm. than if you compared Hellenistic astrology from 2,000 years ago to modern Western astrology today. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah, so you can actually get a lot of insight by studying Indian astrology into what early Western astrology looked like because early Western astrology used many of the same things, like, for example, whole sign houses. Like mm-hmm. the reason, part of the reason that Indian astrologers still use that today is because that's also the original system that Western astrologers used. Mm. Um, the Indian astrologers have dasha systems, which are really amazing, but it turned out yes. that in the West we originally had some really interesting dasha systems as well, but they just didn't get transmitted to <gasps> us. Is that right? Due to yeah, so so that's been actually one of the coolest things, and that was one of the things that when I first, within the first week or two of studying Hellenistic astrology, when they said, you know, in the Western tradition we had these really powerful timing techniques, but they were they didn't get transmitted because not all texts have been, you know, carried forward in all of the traditions over the past two thousand years as Western astrology has been transmitted from culture to culture before it came to us today. Uh-huh. That was one of the biggest like eye openers to me that. You know, one of the presumptions it's really easy, I think, for us to make as modern astrologers is the assumption that, that the way astrology is practiced today is the result of a – it's like a culmination of some sort of, of thousands and thousands of years of practice and that it's all been refined and all of the best parts have sort of survived into today and all of the parts that didn't make sense were dropped along the way. Mm. But in mm-hmm. fact, what happened is that the transmission has been much more checkered than that because mm. – uh, you know, different different cultures would rise and fall over the past 2,000 years, and there would be some texts that would survive and be translated from one, one language to another, but sometimes those texts would be uh, mistranslated or, or they would not survive complete. Some chapters would be missing or only, you know, two or three books would be translated, whereas there was 10 others that weren't translated. So in point of fact, there was a bunch of techniques that, that didn't survive into the modern traditions until recently. Mm. That's that's so good to um that's such a good thing to know because people do take for granted thinking well if if it didn't make it to the present, you know, present time then it's because it, you know, it, it wasn't necessary or it wasn't useful and it's actually the opposite. Yeah, and that's a big assumption that I made and that was one of the big eye openers for me. So mm. part of my goal, you know, with this book and over the past 10 years is just to emphasize especially the parts of ancient astrology that are really valuable or really um, game changers in terms of specific techniques that you can use that can actually, they don't necessarily have to change what you do and that you don't have to stop doing things, but instead sometimes they can enhance um, things that you're already doing. Like the concept of sect, for example, which is the distinction between day and night charts. Mm -hmm. So that was like a huge technique that didn't survive into modern astrology, but it was one of the the most fundamental and important techniques for interpreting a chart in ancient astrology, which is just to determine first whether the person was born during the day or whether they were born at night. And then that would have a direct impact on how you would interpret certain placements in a person's chart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, very few astrologers, I think, use this technique. Yeah, it's something that's not um, well known about, but it's coming back really coming strong back, because right? it actually has a really important, really useful direct application. I mean, one of the applications is that um, generally speaking, uh, people and sort of relevant to, to some of your focus in the past, yeah. but generally speaking, people who are born during the day tend to have more constructive. Uh, the more constructive end of the Saturn archetype tends to manifest during Saturn transits, like the mm-hmm. Saturn return. Mm-hmm. Whereas people with night charts, if the sun is in the bottom half of the chart, basically, um, mm-hmm. tend to have sometimes more challenging uh, Saturn transits, including mm-hmm. the Saturn return. Um, so that's actually like an interpretive principle that right yeah. away you can sort of test as a, as a basic like thesis of does this work. And one of the things that's really fascinating is when you're actually looking for it, you will start to see this general trend of, of, you know, people having their Saturn returns with day charts, oftentimes, you know, it's, it's like, it's not that they don't run into difficulties or yeah. sometimes challenges or setbacks, but oftentimes it's, it's like surmountable difficulties or it's the ones that come up and, and what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a positive, more positive or constructive lesson at the end of the day. Whereas sometimes yeah. with the night chart people, it can be, you know, other factors aside that can mitigate it. 
um, it can sometimes be more challenging and more sort of learning from hardship or, or learning from that sort of part of the, the archetype of Saturn that's a little bit more more subjectively yeah. uh, challenging. Would you say less internal also, like for people born with Saturn in the day chart, that they experience the Saturn more in the external world and people born with a nocturnal chart um, more have to face Saturn on the interior plane? Um, potentially. I mean, I, I would usually look at that more in terms of what house it's placed in. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, like if it was like in a you know the 10th house or right, somewhere in the top right. part of the chart versus in the in the personal houses in the bottom half of the chart or something like that sure but even within the house i guess but this is more of my Jungian brain um just thinking about whether they experience it like they try to live it out or they have you know they they face it more through like an extroverted manner versus introverted lessons of saturn i mean ultimately it's all coming from within of course but i've in my work i've noticed people with the day chart tend to really their, their dance or their relationship with Saturn in their belief system is about everything that's happening externally, regardless of okay. the house, even just, just the approach, the psychological approach tends to feel more extroverted to me. And I hadn't actually made that connection until I, cause I was thinking often in terms of if the planet, if Saturn was retrograde, I would also think of that more in terms of how the, the person's relationship is with the archetype internal, or if they really project it outward Right. Yeah. And that's a really interesting question also, because that's something I've been thinking about a lot in terms of, um, you know, taking or I think I talked to Adam Ellenboss about this in an interview I did a few episodes ago. And that question of, you know, when is it's always hard sometimes to draw that line between is this is a placement, let's say, hypothetically, like a difficult placement in a person's chart. um, Is this something that would have manifested externally? as an external event, no matter what, or, mm-hmm. or is it something where they're not coping with or, or internalizing something in a, in a constructive manner and therefore it is being externalized in some way. And I, I often have a difficult time, you know, telling the difference yeah. and, and the, the line between that sometimes seems very sensitive in terms of how to sometimes say like, you know, this is something that you're clearly not coping with very well and that you need to work on versus, sometimes just like an external event happening and it not necessarily being the person's fault per se. Right. So that kind of gets into that question, that whole, that, that famous saying about that, which is unconscious will appear to you as fate Right. in your life. So if that planet is unconscious, but then you have definitely when I interact with more of the Indian astrology world, there's always the idea of, well, it's your karma. It's your karma. Like it's coming as a karma, but can you, can you mitigate the karma? Actually, Lynn Bell and I were talking about this in a recent podcast we did together about, well, I mean, cause you know, they have all the remedies. That was the older tradition, right? To have the remedies for the planets to appease the planets. If we think of the planets as these kind of deities and, and right. to appease them through the remedies. But she and actually, we were talking about the idea of the act of even the remedies is changing the psychology or changing the, the level of consciousness because you're bringing an awareness to it. So in that sense, you could still be, um, you know, it could still be about changing the fate through the raising of consciousness or bringing that planetary energy more into consciousness. It's just an interesting question because it comes up all the time about how much of this is written in fate, like how much of it is quote unquote faded versus something we can bring to consciousness to change through free will. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the Indian tradition, they have this whole sort of stratification or, or this hierarchy of different types of karma, and you know the ones that are negotiable versus ones that are are like, no, this is this is not something yes. you can get out get out of necessarily. Like the pravda um, karma, like the karmas that you just have to suffer. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of an interesting question as well. It's like, and that's one of the things I was trying to do with the book is that part of my main thesis with the book and the purpose of the subtitle is that. Um, part of my argument is that somebody actually, uh, or a group of people more likely around the first century BCE seem to have de- designed this specific approach to astrology that uses the fourfold system of planets and signs and houses and aspects. Um, and they designed it as a system in order to study an individual's fate and, and using the original conceptualization of fate in the ancient world or the one that was prevalent during that time period. And that's something that's a little bit 
foreign to us to some extent, even as modern astrologers, because we're not usually used to, or sometimes we can be a little bit uncomfortable with, with um, framing astrology in that way as, as talking about a person's fate. Whereas in Indian astrology, it, it's the much easier just because they're using the term karma is essentially the same thing in some sense. Um, mm-hmm. But sort of not reasserting that, but bringing back a discussion about astrology within the context of fate is the other part of, you know, something I'm very interested in in terms of the philosophy of astrology and being able to create a more nuanced and well-articulated philosophy of astrology and philosophy of, of fate mm-hmm. um, in, in modern times as part of my, my interest as well. Mm, yeah, no, it's, this, it's, it's an ongoing, fascinating question that I feel never quite get the answer to, because there's so many nuances in the whole fate versus free will. It's an endless philosophical discussion. But I mean, we're so lucky that we have the language of astrology to get as close as we can to understanding what's going on, and finding a, a more conscious relationship with it. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Going back to the original, like the, the marriage of the psychological with the traditional, which which the traditional, you say, is more focused on the idea of prediction and fate and just the whole question of like, how can we can we predict our our futures? Yeah, I mean, part of the thing that was really that they seem to have taken as a, as a given is that um, that part of the premise of, of natal astrology, at least, is that some events in our lives are, are predetermined just based on the premise that the alignment of the planets and the, the cosmos at the moment that a person is born has something to say about not just the quality of their life, but also specific events that will happen in their future. And so in that context, you know, everybody in the ancient world pretty much agreed that some, at least some events in our lives are predetermined, but there was kind of a debate about how far that goes. And it's like how, how many, mm-hmm. how much of our life is predetermined, but there wasn't this question of, you know, is astrology predictive or is fate something that plays a role in our life is sort of taken as a given, but instead it was just a, a debate about the extent of that. Well, it's interesting how, right. And I've noticed there has been, especially as Vedic astrology is becoming more and more popular, at least as I see on the internet, like on Facebook and just watching the rise of a lot of new Vedic astrologers. um, What has been coming to me, what I've noticed is people, there's a kind of an interesting split that's happening where it's like, well, if I want a psychological evaluation, I'll go to a Western astrologer. But if I really want to know what's going to happen to me and I want accurate predictions and dates and things that I know are, you know, absolutely this is going to happen, I'll go to, I'll go for a Vedic reading. Right. Yeah. There is that kind of, um, not segregation or dichotomy or something that's, that's coming up. And that is kind of interesting just because, um, you know, modern psychological astrology is really good at getting to the core and the sort of heart of a person's psyche and character analysis and sort of talking in a more like process oriented approach Mm -hmm. about what's going on in their life and what they can do to work on things or make some things better versus that that other approach that especially Indian astrology has um, really cultivated, which is just attempting to make specific statements about things that will happen or, or will not happen at different points in a person's life to mm-hmm. the to whatever extent a person can. And that's one of the things that I'm interested in reviving Western traditional astrology is that, it still occurs within, you know, Western Hellenistic astrology still uses essentially the same framework, yeah. the fourfold fr- framework of planet signs, houses, and aspects. So the the promise there for me is that it would be much easier to reunite and integrate that older form of predictive astrology from the Western tradition with the contemporary modern mm. psychological traditions Great. than it would be to sort of integrate or synthesize like Indian astrology and modern psychological astrology or something like that. And the other way. Yeah, exactly. And I'm curious because you mentioned earlier in the interview that you love the Dasha, you were really fascinated with the Dasha system, which I also find to be extremely useful, um, which is the, the system of explaining when certain karmas ripen and when a certain planetary energy is really running the show, we could say, for a certain number of years, you know, the one that's kind of the overarching theme of, of the, the karma or the life path at that time. And you mentioned that there's a um, some similar, there's an equivalent of some kind in the, 
in the Western tradition, in the earlier ancient astrology on the Western side, you mentioned, I, I don't remember if you gave it a name, but you said there was something similar you had discovered. Yeah, they refer to them. They, they originally called them um, different techniques for, for dividing the times in a person's life, or sometimes they would refer to them as uh, what we call today as uh, time lord techniques. Time lord. Yeah, I love that. That's what I always associate you with that term. Okay. Right. So there was some, there was a bunch of them. There was at least seven or maybe nine different time lord techniques that we've recovered that didn't make it into modern times that we've just mm. sort of got from ancient texts over the past 10 or 20 years. And in the past 10 years, that's been a large part of my focus is applying those and, and learning how they work and um, refining them um, so that we're taking some of the ways that the, the texts say that you can apply them and seeing how that works. But then also sometimes just by the practice of using them, you can find new things and, and new ac applications of them. So one of the, the most interesting one, there, there's like a really simple one that I talk about in the book in one of the last chapters called Annual Perfections, mm -hmm. which is one that anybody can calculate in their head. And it was so simple but so powerful that almost every ancient author used it. And with this technique, you just um, you determine what your rising sign is. And whatever sign that is, the planet that rules that sign will become activated as a time lord for the first year of your life. Mm. So if you have you know, let's say Taurus rising, then mm -hmm. Venus will be activated for that year of your life. Mm -hmm. And then once that year is up, you move to the next sign in zodiacal order. So if you have Taurus rising, then on your first birthday, it would move to Gemini. And then mm -hmm. Mercury would be activated for that year of your life. So you just follow around the chart wheel, like starting with the ascendant. Yeah, exactly. Just yeah. one sign per year. Per year. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it activates that planet both in its natal position, but also in its transits. Mm -hmm. So um, what that means is that if you have a planet, so that this is kind of relevant to part of your series right now, because yeah. if, for example, Venus is activated for you this year, yeah. then you know that this Venus retrograde cycle that's happening right now is going to be much more important and is probably going to coincide with a much more important series of events or sort of unfolding in your life yes. than it would in some other year if Venus was not activated as a time Lord in that year. Yes. Yeah. So it actually becomes a, a technique for determining which transits are going to be important in a given year versus which transits will not be as important under the premise that not all parts of the chart are activated at all times, but instead some of the potentials in the natal chart sort of lie dormant until those parts of the chart or those planets become awakened as time lords and then their power is sort of unleashed in some sense. Are you in a Mercury year? I'm actually, hilariously, I'm in a, in a ninth house Libra perfection year, oh. so I'm in, a, I'm in a Venus perfection year, <laughs> and I've, I released my book during, just <laughs> after Venus went into its shadow, in the, the pre-retrograde shadow <gasps> phase, Amazing. and then this whole promotional, you know, sort of tour I'm doing to promote the book, and suddenly yeah. hundreds of people have it in their hands, it's all occurring as Venus is going retrograde. Yeah, and the Libra aspect, like all these interviews, one-on-ones. Yeah, exactly. Ninth house publishing, like, that's amazing, yeah, I love it. Right, and it's going retrograde in my third house. So it's <laughs> it's about you know this book that I wrote. It's all really really oh, nice. That's great. I know, and I love the other thing I love that you brought back, and I really loved your class. I think it was at um, um, I can't remember. There's so many astrology conferences. I think it was not this last ISAR, but the one maybe the the one previous to it, where mm -hmm. you taught about the auspicious timings. Uh, in terms of, of electional astrology? Electional just astrology, of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love your work with yeah. electional astrology and bringing that back from the, the older systems I think is so important because that's also something that I've noticed is kind of, um, you know, I don't you don't see it as much with modern astrologers using, to, like, I'm saying auspicious timings because that's how I hear of it. Yeah, that's how they talk about it in Vedic mm -hmm. astrology. But, yeah, election, you call it electional astrology. Yeah, just um, you from the you know word elect, which is like to make a choice, and, mm -hmm. and when choosing the basic distinction of choosing to start something or initiate an action at one time rather than another in order to attempt to select a more favorable outcome uh, for what you're trying to do. Yeah, and that's something where again, it's it's like part of my work in ancient astrology has made that easier because it's actually surprising, and I was surprised about ten years ago. Just before I got into older forms of astrology, I actually wanted to learn electional astrology, I think around 2004 or so, but I looked around and I couldn't find any books on the topic. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's kind of surprising because you think that that would be a, a 
topic that would be more written about a lot more. Um, but in fact, you know, modern astrology, one of the things, um, with modern psychological astrology is I think in the move in the 1970s and eighties to reconceptualize everything so that you could fully see, you know, sort of rejecting distinctions that seemed too basic and too simplistic and black and white, like good and bad or benefic and malefic yes. and things like that. Mm-hmm. There was a, there was a desire to reject some of those distinctions as being too simplistic and not being nuanced enough, which was, which was a totally valid thing. But part of the thing that got lost as, as a result of that, I think is that it's very hard to do electional astrology without making distinctions like that in terms of, you know, if you have an option between two different placements in an electional chart for somebody to, let's say, get married, mm-hmm. um, you have to make a qualitative distinction and say one of these is better than the other. And, and it's not necessarily appropriate at that point to say, well, you know, either one could manifest in a positive or negative manner, depending on the person's level of consciousness or something like that. Right. It's like, you know, you're actually supposed to pick out one right. that at least theoretically would be more constructive for whatever the person's trying to accomplish. And so in that sense, you know, some of these older techniques that do make those types of distinctions or do, do at least try to make a distinction between when a planetary placement is qualitatively going to be experienced as more subjectively positive where versus when it's going to be experienced as more subjectively challenging, um, becomes very useful within the context of things like electional astrology. Mm -hmm. So that's been, part of what I was doing as well is reviving some of those older approaches to electional astrology over the past 10 years and writing that column uh, on electional astrology for several years for the Mountain Astrologer magazine. And then mm-hmm. more recently doing that as sort of a monthly thing with my partner, Lisa Scheim, as on our podcast where we record like a 45 minute sort of private um, subscriber only uh, thing where we highlight four of the most auspicious electional charts that we can find each month. Oh, that's amazing. How do we get in on that? Um, that's just one of the benefits I have set up for my podcast for patrons who are on the $5 tiers. So people that are donating, um, $5 an episode, get access to that, um, that sort of 45 minute episode that we do each month, just as sort of like a perk. I'm going to sign up. We'll have to put that on for other people. That's a great, that's a wonderful thing to have. Yeah, it was really fun. We were doing it for several years for TMA and then I was just kind of repurposing the content and releasing it on my monthly forecast episodes, but I got kind of fatigued, uh, mm. writing that column like every yeah, two months. Sure. Um, and also just the, the format's a little restrictive in terms of you only have like two pages to attempt to talk about all the nuances and details of each of these charts and what they would be good for versus what they might, might not be as good for. And I was excited, uh, to have the opportunity instead to just do it in more of an audio format, a free form format where we could like talk more, candidly about each of the charts yeah that's more fun too that's great yeah Yeah, and it's so it's so powerful like so when you released your book did you 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 knew you were in the venus year yeah i mean i um part of the strategy of the timing and and it actually tied into another time lord technique which is a more advanced Mm -hmm. one which i I talk about in the final chapter of the book which is called zodiac releasing Mm -hmm. and Zodiac releasing is the one that's much closest to the Indian Dasha systems because Mm -hmm. what it does is it takes the person's entire life and then it divides it up into different chapters as if the life was a book and you could sort of like pick up the book of the native's life and see where the chapter breaks are Um, as well as in some instances being able to highlight what some of the most important chapters are in the person's life and Mm -hmm. make qualitative distinctions between those chapters um, but then it can also be broken up into sub-periods to study shorter increments of time as if you were studying individual paragraphs or, or sentences or words within each given chapter of the native's life. Mm, amazing. And which, so with, yeah. with, mm-hmm. with that technique, I was actually in a, a year-long major career peak period that started about a year ago and then it culminated, I think, in mid-February, which ended up being when I released the book on February 10th. Oh. Um, sort of because I was trying to get it out in time for this NCGR conference in mid-February, and I always had the idea that I wanted to have it out by then, but it all just sort of came together that when at the very end of that year-long sort of career peak period, according to this technique from the second century, when it said I would have a career peak, I did end up sort of eventually finally releasing the book. Ah, amazing. I love that. 
yeah, it was really great. And it was actually, weirdly, it was a repetition from uh, a decade earlier when I first started studying Hellenistic astrology. I was in the same sort of Time Lord or same Dasha period. And then hmm. what happened is when that Dasha period or that Time Lord period repeated a decade later, that's when I wrote the book on the topic and released it. Ah, okay. So full circle. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and there's things like that. And that's one of the things I'm interested in because that's a much more sort of predictive approach to astrology. But one of the things that's interesting about that is we're reviving all these techniques from these ancient texts, but they don't really come with like a guidebook about like how you're supposed to present them in an astrological consultation. And so there's all these ethical mm. and counseling and like um, other concerns mm -hmm. that are relevant that actually still need to be developed within the context of reviving some of these ancient techniques. Mm. And that's one of the areas that I'm most interested in going forward is just outlining mm -hmm. sort of guides and best practices for the application of some of these techniques in a modern context. Um, because, you know, sometimes even if you, you can say something to a person yeah. about their chart, and even if it's something that's accurate and true, that's, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should say that yeah. uh, to, to the person about their chart or that, that it's always appropriate to be as candid as you, you could. And I know that that's something that Indian or Western <laughs> practitioners of Indian astrology have dealt with over the past 20 years and had debates about because yeah. in Indian culture, I think they're <laughs> a little bit more open about just, you know, directly saying whatever and the astrologer <laughs> yeah. being almost overly candid yes. about the chart, right? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, it's like, there's no censor. we have a similar issue with Hellenistic astrology where it has that sort of capability to be that direct, but I think that's where some of the modern advancements over the past several decades in counseling skills and, um, you know, psychology and things like that are, are really useful and, and need to be integrated into some of these traditional techniques before they're just sort of unleashed on the world. I agree. Even with the modern techniques, I think there, you know, there could still be more, I don't, I don't like the word regulation. That sounds like too rigid, but I mean, there's, I think even in the using them, even using the psychological, the astrological systems, there's not a lot of, I think there needs to be more guidance about the actual counseling practices still that go, that are going on. Yeah, totally. And that's a big issue. And I'm glad that, you know, some of the astrological organizations have at least made the attempt to set up ethics guidelines yes, yes. And, and move towards things like that and started doing, um, having some standardization within the field regarding that. But it's something Good. that, you know, I hope continues and, and gets even better, but also now with some of these older forms of astrology becoming more prominent, they almost require in some ways, a unique set of solutions in some instances, just because, yeah. you know, like that technique, for example, can say, you know, a person will hit a career peak between when they're between the ages of 51 and 67 or something like that. And just there's different sort of ethical concerns going into it in terms of how that information should be discussed right, in, a, right. in a constructive manner. Right. You wouldn't want to be like, well, you know, you got to wait a long time. Yeah, you got to wait a long time or you've already passed people. it. Like yeah. one of the ones that's funny is like, um, you know, I, I love using um, Justin Bieber's chart because he's a person who his career peak, actually, he starts in it really early in his life. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. And so you have instances like that where you have like, let's say like a child star yeah. who, you know, becomes really famous really early on in their life mm -hmm. versus other scenarios of, of people, let's say, that don't get don't do their most important work until more towards the end of their life or something like that. Right. Right. That's also the beauty of astrology is to realize like it, everyone does have their own timeline literally. Yeah. And, and that's the most interesting in a broader sort of philosophical or metaphysical sense for me, the biggest sort of take home lesson is that it really does give each person some sense of like the narrative of their life and that mm -hmm. their life might have some sort of broader narrative or, or meaning or purpose within its own context. And there's yeah. something about that where if astrology did nothing else or if it did nothing else outside of that and that was all, all it accomplished, that's still quite a huge, um, huge thing and a, and a sort of paradigm shift just in terms of some other prevailing sort of contemporary thought about and sort of philosophy about the nature of the cosmos and like our, our place in it. Mm, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm glad we brought that up. And I see we're running out of time, but I have two questions I really want to get in if we can. Um, sure. One is your feelings about the tropical versus the sidereal zodiac. 
having, you know, studied both systems? Sure. I mean, I think um, from what I can tell is there, you know, they're both aligned about 2000 years ago, which is approximately when, even though the Zodiac is a little bit older than that, most of the qualities that Western astrologers and even Indian astrologers associate with the Zodiac weren't put into place until about the first century BCE. So you really have to look back to like that time period to see how they were conceptualizing the Zodiac and what they were drawing on um, when they were originally using it. And it turns out that when you look at texts from that time period, they were basically taking elements from both. So sometimes they would um, have delineations of the planets in the zodiacal signs that were clearly based on tropical or seasonal considerations. Mm -hmm. Like the idea of the quadruplicities is based on the notion that cardinal signs are aligned with the beginning of the seasons. Mm -hmm. And so they more init they, they're more easily initiate new activities or, or new things, but have a hard time following through, mm -hmm. whereas fixed signs fall in the middle of the seasons. And so there's this sense of the weather not changing very much. And that's why they're associated with like permanence and, um, you know, a lack of change. Whereas mm -hmm. the finally the mutable signs are at the end of the seasons where there's a transition from one season to another. And so mutable signs get this quality associated with them of uh, sort of tran transition or of um, sort of doing two things at once. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so that to me, that's clearly like a seasonal or a tropical consideration. Whereas there's other qualities that the astrologers during that time period would sometimes get that seem to come from specific fixed stars um, like the, the Pleiades, sometimes like Vedius Valens in the second century talks about the Pleiades when he's talking about Taurus. Um, and that's clearly more of a sidereal consideration. So in terms of sort of the, you know, making yeah. a historical argument about which Zodiac mm -hmm. is better or mm -hmm. something like that, it's really hard to do because they were using both in that time period. Mm. Instead, I think you need to just break it up into its individual pieces and to figure out you know, which, where you're drawing certain, certain, um, qualities from. Mm -hmm. And if that makes more sense in a tropical framework or makes more sense in the sidereal framework, I personally think that the, the quadruplicities and the traditional rulership scheme is explicitly derived from a tropical framework and it doesn't make as much sense in a sidereal framework, but that's sort of my opinion. I mean, the other yeah. thing is that, I can't get the Time Lord systems to work as well in the sidereal zodiac as I can in the tropical zodiac. So mm. in terms of where it finally came down for me, I would have been fine going either way. But mm -hmm. the, the Time Lord systems that I was recovering were really impressive when I applied them in, in tropical charts, but mm. they weren't as impressive when I applied them sidereally. Um, so that's the other sort of consideration for me in terms of using the tropical zodiac. Okay. It's always funny when... I'm with a Vedic astrologer and we're like, okay, so the moon, like for instance, right now the moon is in Leo, tropical, but it would still be in Cancer and we'll have the discussion like, does the moon really feel like it's in Leo to you? Or does it feel like Cancer? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, like and it's tough because I, I think some of the, it's like the meanings are probably a little bit different and it's shifted in the two traditions, but then it's different. Sometimes it's difficult also sometimes because when you get a, a modern a Western person who started in modern astrology and learned the meanings of the signs there yes. and then starts practicing Vedic astrology, yes. sometimes they're in, in, importing sort of modern Western notions of what the signs mean into Indian astrology. Whereas if you just read like a Sanskrit text from like the sixth century or something, sometimes the way that they describe the signs is a little bit different and might be more appropriate or make sense in the sidereal zodiac. Um, That's a good so, point. I mean, ultimately the, the best thing at some point I would hope is to, is to re, um, to, to merge the two and yeah. find a way to reconcile the tropical and sidereal zodiac. Cause originally it wasn't in an either or situation. It was sort of both. That would be ideal. And it, yeah. And it, if it's possible to do that without making some just like hodgepodge of, of right. way too complicated of a system, then right. that would be the ideal, I think, solution to that. That would be, I agree. Um, I think the nakshatras help in terms of like the understanding of the different influences too. Like even if the moon is in a particular sign, understanding which nakshatra it's in often helps understand the qualities too. And then there's often alignment between the two interpretive systems of at least the moon transit, I notice. Yeah, and the nakshatras are clearly sidereal because they're connected with specific fixed stars. And I think that's why Indian astrology stayed sidereal, yeah. sidereally based with their zodiac yeah. and some of their dasha systems you know, like the um, 
the Vimshodri Dasha system is explicitly derived from and, and predicated on the Nakshatra system. So yeah. it makes sense that it would work in a sidereal uh, context. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like some of the other, the, the Hellenistic techniques don't necessarily have that in terms of being tied into something explicitly sidereal. And so that's the reason why I think at least conceptually they might work better in, in terms of the tropical zodiac. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, the other question I wanted to ask, or the other, you know, since I'm in the midst of this um, 40-day Venus retrograde journey, I was curious to get your take on, because you have a chapter, I mean, I know it's about more than just Venus, but the, the whole evening star, morning star phenomenon, if you have any other insights into this particular this uh, particular Venus retrograde, since it's an important one for you personally, with your your year, perfection year. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I would just say, you know, one, do that, that annual perfections time Lord technique that we talked about earlier in order to see if Venus is going to be activated for you this year, either if you're in a Libra perfection year or a Taurus perfection year, mm-hmm. um, or even if the perfection has come to the sign that contains your natal Venus in your chart, mm-hmm. um, then it would still be activating it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that instance, you're probably going to be affected by this retrograde, or at least you're going to experience it as a much more important, uh, probably the, the focal point of this year for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas for other people, it might pass by without it being as, as majorly relevant or sometimes just not being directly relevant to them. But instead, it might be something going on in the life of somebody around them who's close. Mm-hmm. Um so that's one of the things that's useful. I mean, in terms of the morning star versus evening star, the big way that they use that distinction was just to say that if Venus is a morning star and it rises before the sun um, on the, the day of the native's birth, then the person's going to tend to be more extroverted or mm-hmm. more more active. Um, yeah, more active in terms of the way that they manifest their Venus placement versus if a person has an evening star, then that sort of um, archetype in their life is going to tend to be more introverted or more passive in the way that it's expressed uh, in that part of their chart. Or some astrologers say before the sun, more Luciferian, and after the sun, like a little bit more sweet. That's, of course, you know, it's a little more dramatic version I've been hearing a lot. It's interesting, this particular Venus retrograde, I've, I've noticed the mythology coming out a lot more publicly, which I thought right. was interesting. Have you noticed that? Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, and I've been trying to understand why that was. And if it's just, I mean, I'm, I guess it's probably just because of, you know, it's pretty close to that whole other cluster of stuff that's happening in that Aries Libra yeah. sort of axis yes. with Mars and Jupiter and Uranus and, and then Pluto with the T square. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling with Mars at the last degree of Taurus today? My fellow scorpion. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, on the one hand, I'm ready for it to move on just because so much of that has been you know, me releasing the book is that's going through my third house and yeah. both the, the excitement and the energy, but also just a little bit of exhaustion and fatigue yeah. with all of the, 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 you know, how dynamic that is going yeah. through a cardinal sign and hitting Jupiter and Uranus like that. So on the one <laughs> hand, I'm ready for it to go for, on the other hand, as a, as a fixed sign person, like you're talking about, I'm not as looking forward to it starting to hit all of my fixed planets, but yeah. that's, that is what it is. <laughs> yes, right, right. Um, I know. I feel you. I'm also in a Venus year, perfection okay. year, and um, my eleventh house. And then perfect. Uh, yeah, and we have. Where, which do you mind if I ask? Which degree is your? I forget. I think your Saturn is very close to a lot of my Scorpio planets. Sure, my Saturn's at uh, seventeen Scorpio. Yeah, yeah. Well, my that's like where all my my Scorpio stellium is. So yeah. So when when Mars gets into the the center of Taurus is when we really feel it. Yeah, exactly. We'll have to, I don't know, form a support group for mid exactly. people. Exactly. Well, it's good. I'm so glad that we didn't um, reschedule this interview because we'd probably be exhausted after this. This is like we got it in right as our like our last kind of energetic hurrah. Yeah, if nothing else, we, we can at least say that we, we did this interview before everything went awry. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's so funny because as I was walking, I was literally walking up the hill to um, come and start this interview with you. And I was thinking so much about, I associate you so much with time, I think, because your Saturn is right on all of my planets. So I, I definitely feel all the Saturnian influence. And I was like, one thing I've learned with Saturn is that it's actually really important as much as possible. I don't know if you've discovered this. I'm sure you have, having such strong Saturn. Um, 
to when you schedule something to to not reschedule whenever possible because whenever I've tried to impose a reschedule like for fear or whatever you feel unprepared or you feel like something's not quite right or whatever procrastination or resistance that comes and you reschedule the original appointment or the original thing that has been scheduled that it inevitably it's it just like the whole day unravels or like you just notice it's like one problem after another like from doing yeah. that, have you experienced that? Yeah, I've totally had that. And that sometimes the rescheduled one is not as good as it might have ended up being if you had just done it that yeah. day when, when the energies were sort of calling for it. Right, right. So I, I love that that I love those teachings of Saturn. That that's been a big one to like always as, as much as possible honor the original commitment. Don't push it back, don't be late, don't don't try to change it last minute or, you know. And and it's it really is the principle of resistance. So it's kind of like Saturn turning in on itself. Yeah, and just learning how to how to roll with it, and that's definitely one of the things I'm always trying to pay attention to in electional astrology. Also, in terms of sometimes looking at that, just by, by keeping a live chart going each day and and trying to identify and isolate what that is, so you can sort of be more aware of it and and sort of let go sometimes and just let it let whatever's going to happen happen. Mm. Is there a particular? Just as the very last thing, a particular day of March that is. You probably talk about this in that podcast you mentioned, but um, that is especially auspicious in general. Um, let me see. I yeah, we highlighted one specific chart for March, which we um, decided was, as far as we can tell, the most um, auspicious chart we could come up with, and that takes place on let's see, March fourteenth. So it's still coming up in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Great. that's actually funny. Didn't you say that was when the book is going to show up or maybe you said the 12th? Uh, yes, it's, it, no, the 14th is when it's going to arrive now. Oh, great. Well, that's, that's the most suspicious. We actually have the chart on the astrology podcast.com on the latest forecast episode. So Ooh. March 14th, 27 at the, the time we picked and this works for most local times is about one forty-three or one forty-five PM. Just make sure you have, um, mid to late cancer rising, like put the ascendant at about 21 degrees of cancer. And then, um, yeah, that, that makes the focus that cancer is, or the moon is the ruler of the ascendant and it's in Libra in the fourth house applying within about a degree to a conjunction with Jupiter in, in Libra. Amazing. So, yeah. So it's a, you know, one of the principles there is just, it's a moon Jupiter conjunction day, which in and of itself is a nice mm-hmm. auspicious little aspect, but you mm-hmm. kind of focus it in and, and personalize it to the chart by actually making the moon the ruler of the ascendant uh, because the ruler of the ascendant always represents who is initiating the action at that time or the thing that is born at that time. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're being represented by the moon and you're in an applying conjunction with Jupiter that it indicates favorable things symbolically coming up um, after you initiate that action. Oh, I love that. I actually have a very important journey planned that day, like right around that time. So that's amazing. Perfect. Well, I didn't let even me know. know how it goes. <laughs> I will. Okay. <laughs> that's, one, that's great news. Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much for taking all this time. I could talk to you for another, you know, 10 hours. Um, so I'll definitely have to have you back on again. Yeah, this is awesome, and uh, good luck with the rest of the the series. It's exciting to get it in towards the very end. Yeah, yeah. Um, Five left to go, and um, yeah, it'll be this this one. We're just in day today is day three. I mean, we didn't start it exactly on the first day of the retrograde since retrograde is not exactly forty days. Mm -hmm. We waited and we wanted to start on Monday, so yeah, we're in day three. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. So well, you're, part, you're part of you're part of day three. So I'm going to share this podcast with the with the Temenos with the 40 day group. So I'm excited to introduce your work to them for those of them who haven't haven't heard you yet, and also um, have you back on in the future. Maybe because one thing I didn't get to talk to you about, which I'd love to talk in the future, is about your whole journey with because we're focusing more on your book this time, but just you know developing a podcast. I think right. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. I like talking about the, you know, the, there's the astrology side and then there's the business side yeah. of being a professional astrologer. And I'm interested in, you know, having those discussions just to help out other astrologers to find different ways to to do what they do and to do it better. And I feel like Scorpios, we love to interview people because it's like the psychologist. And I always think of Larry King, like as a typical <laughs> Scorpio interviewer. Right, totally. He's kind of like my, my, my role model for that. I love the way he interviews people. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> I, I feel that as well. Oh, great. Amazing. Uh, well, thanks again, Chris. And um, I will send you all of the, um, I, I mean, I will give everyone the links to your, um, all your sites. And actually, are you doing, do you give readings, one-on-one readings? Um, I do. I'm taking some time off because I actually have to catch up where oh, I, I stopped sure. for like a year to write the book and now I have a huge backlog. So okay. uh, I'm just referring people to to out for that right now. But um, yeah, I mean, you can see for most of my things. approach since I wrote like a 700 page book. Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. Re- reading the book. <laughs> we'll, we'll get the book. Okay. And I'll direct people to um, your website where they can order the book and get signed copies. Yeah, you can actually, I'm actually sending out, actually, I think I just heard them deliver another uh, 30 books <gasps> to my door. So During uh, the three, you, during the podcast? Yeah, exactly. That's, it showed that's an up omen. Like, right, at, right at the beginning. <laughs> Those are for my the par- partner is going to be a little annoyed with me <laughs> bringing in like 10 boxes right oh, now. Oh no, okay, so I'll let you go in. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, so yeah, you can order the uh, book at Hellen- hellenisticastrology.com slash book, and I, uh, if you want a signed copy, just send me a note, and then I can, I can sign it and send it off via two-day priority mail. Awesome. And then they have to take a photo too, which I'm going to do as soon as I get my book because you have pictures of people all over the world with your book. Yeah. I just got one from a guy today who took one. He's from Vegas and he took one in front of the, the welcome to Vegas sign, which I was really excited about. Oh, no way. Uh, so yeah, especially ones that like show off the local scenery. I really appreciate just because then you can really get a sense that it really is all over the world at this point. Do you have one with the, the Golden Gate Bridge in the background yet? I do not. Okay. Um, I, there's a missing gap <gasps> there. Where... Save that for me. Okay. <laughs> and with a, with my pug, I'll have we'll have Harpo in the bridge in the picture. That would be brilliant. <laughs> okay. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Chris. We'll wrap it up here. All right. Sounds good.